I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rare Extra. Welcome to the inaugural episode of Rare Extra, an occasional Rare X podcast where we take a deeper dive with experts on critical issues for the rare disease community. Rare X recently produced a white paper in partnership with the ARM Foundation for Cell and Gene Medicine, which is dedicated to providing education, information, and research needed to expand patient awareness of and accelerate access to transformative therapies. The white paper explored the long-term data requirements for cell and gene therapies. You can find the paper under the Our Work tab on the RareX website. For this episode, RareX and the ARM Foundation expand on the white paper with a discussion featuring Betsy Bogard, who has worked in industry for cell and gene therapy developers, Craig Lipset, founder of Clinical Innovation Partners and an adjunct assistant professor in the Department of Health Informatics at Rutgers University, and Ian Winburn, global medical lead for hemophilia, endocrine, and inborn errors of metabolism in the rare disease division of Pfizer. They explored the challenges for long-term follow-up of patients who receive cell and gene therapies, why technology may represent the least of the problems, and why it's an issue best tackled through the collaboration of all rare disease stakeholders. Betsy, Craig, Ian, thank you all for joining us. Oh, great to be here. Thank you very much for, uh, for having us. We're going to talk about cell and gene therapy, long-term follow-up, and the data-gathering challenges it poses for developers of these therapies. And consider the role that standardization of a non-proprietary data collection platform such as RareX can play in addressing these challenges. Betsy, perhaps you can start with the need. What are the regulatory requirements cell and gene therapy developers face today to gather this data? It's a great place to start because these are these requirements are huge drivers of, of the ecosystem around data collection. Regulators are requiring anywhere from five to 15 years of follow-up data for cell and gene therapies, both from patients who may have received the therapy in a clinical trial and also from the initial commercial patients receiving a gene therapy. As innovative technologies with potentially lifelong benefits and risks from potentially just a single administration, the regulators really want to be sure that they have data on the long-term outcomes of these technologies. They are looking for data on both safety and durability. Understanding durability means that they want to be sure that the good effects of the gene therapy are lasting as long as expected. And for the safety data, they really want to understand the same question, but about the potentially unwanted outcomes of a therapy. The safety data can include integration activity for the therapy, meaning whether and where that gene therapy might have integrated into the patient's genome, and any related delayed adverse events, meaning does that activity of the gene therapy inadvertently cause something unwanted, such as cancer, years later. Craig, beyond regulators, there are other rare disease stakeholders who have an interest in this type of data. What are the different players out there, and how do they look at the, the need for this data? 
Well, it's a fabulous question. Certainly the regulators care um, and, the, and the drug developers, the medicine developers care, but there's so many other stakeholders that want and, and really need and will benefit from access to this type of data as long as they're given permission to do so. But the ability to open up these data, whether for other advocacy groups, for other types of research to be stimulated that can continue to serve and meet the needs of patients in that area indication, or other patients in related areas that may be beneficiaries. I think the, 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 the challenge of having data locked up in one silo, quite honestly, that's just not consistent with the wishes of patients who choose to participate in research. When they wanted to allow their data to be used, they want it to be used as broadly as they're willing to give permission for it to be used. And so the, the ability to unlock that data so that it can become accessible for other types of research, whether in the biotech and pharma industry, academic, patient-driven or otherwise, as long as it's consistent with the permissions of the patient, we have to find all the pathways we can to unlock its use. Ian, what's the expectations of for how this type of data will be used and what types of questions do you see various stakeholders seeking to answer with it? Yeah, <clears throat> thank you for, for, for the question there, Danny. I, 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 I think really picking up really on what Betsy was describing uh, and also Craig to, 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 to the same extent, from a safety perspective, from a durability perspective, these are, are key questions that the multiple stakeholders have a desire to answer. Uh, you know, and, you know, as we've touched on, that regulators clearly want to understand that a medicine in the real world has a profile that is similar to what was seen in a clinical trial, but also recognizing that clinical trials are of a defined duration and often these therapies, single administration, but may have uh, efficacy and durability for a considerable period of time, there is a need to follow up long-term to truly understand what the safety profile are of these medicines. And that, that's very relevant to uh, the regulators. But of course, other data is also really relevant here, particularly I think when we think about the patient, you know, what is the impact on a therapy, on a patient's quality of life, on, on their ability to perform you know their, their their normal activities of daily living to to truly understand you know true patient reported outcomes about the impact that some of these potentially um, breakthrough therapies are going to have on, on patients life so the collation of that data has huge utility not just to academics and and, and regulators and, and and potentially payers but also to the clinical community, to, to the patient community, because this helps to inform decision-making and uh, shared decision-making between healthcare professionals and, and patients who live with rare diseases. So there's huge utility, I think, of the data. It's got to be very robust in how it's collected. It's got to obviously form uh, and align to all the appropriate standards and regulations, you know, as Craig highlighted, absolutely foundationally, 
you know, the consent of a patient for how their data is going to be used, uh, you know, it needs to be respected at all times. But but within, you know, those parameters, this really does have huge utility, I think, to impact a huge number of stakeholders. Many people seem to view this as an industry problem, that it's the responsibility of industry to figure out how to do this and to take care of it. How well equipped are cell and gene therapy makers for this task? So, you know, I, I, I don't think actually that the responsibility sits purely with manufacturers. This is an issue, as I say, for all those stakeholders I previously mentioned, this is a community uh, issue because the benefits of you know robust data collection particularly in rare diseases where you know the numbers of patients affected in a specific disease are, are really low and sometimes the events that we're looking at are actually incredibly rare um the the the, the there is a real need to have uh, a community approach so for industry, for manufacturers, you know, we are very familiar with working with regulatory agencies and providing long-term uh, uh, data provisions as requested by those regulators. That's something, you know, that is part of uh, our day-to-day -day work. But I think this is going beyond that. This is actually saying when data is being collected, how broad can it be used appropriately and how broad can the benefits therefore be so this is an issue really for a community to come together to to try and solve and whilst industry clearly has a role i, I think it is only part of the solution and it, it should be collective that we, we we do our best to find a solution that works for all I'm, I wanted to add a little bit to that great answer Ian just provided and, and just say a little bit more about the ways that industry is equipped to address this problem and ways that they're not, because I think it helps point us towards how we could do it differently. Industry can bring knowledge and you describe the regulatory knowledge they have, right? They're able to bring the great depth of knowledge that they have in this technology, this disease, what data are needed to answer the questions of the regulators. They also bring resources. Industry has an enormous amount of resources that they can bring to bear on the collection of long-term follow-up data. And, um, and so th those two things to me are, are what they can contribute, but they also are... are are not so equipped to, to build these registries because they are focused on the aspects of the disease that are relevant to the treatment they are providing for as long as that is relevant to their business. And so if you imagine a disease that manifests systemically in your organs and blood and also in your brain and central nervous system, and you're a company that has a treatment that can address only the systemic aspects of the disease, but not the brain and central nervous manifestations, if you build a long-term follow-up data set, you're only going to focus on the symptoms you can treat. So you're going to build a data set that doesn't capture the whole picture of a disease, and that doesn't serve patients in the long run. And I think the other way that companies fall short is that they're not incentivized to share data. If a 
pharmaceutical or biotechnology company has built a registry and spent tens of millions of dollars to create a robust data set, um, there are very few of those who would freely share it with somebody else, freely give it away or, or, or make it available to others. They just don't have the incentive to do that. And, and again, it doesn't serve patients. So I'll, I'll build on that as well, that this is a great time for this conversation because while it's, it's, it is true and accurate what was just said that the incentives don't exist for pharmaceutical companies to completely open up access to their research data that they're investing to create, it is not starting from a, from a, from a dead start. The pharmaceutical industry, biotechnology industry has been doing more and more progressive data sharing over the last five to seven years and only accelerated right during COVID, during the pandemic. We've seen data sharing with control arms being uh, shared as natural history data sources. We've seen data sharing where companies have made the data available through controlled settings through through academic partners or through more closed communities of researchers. And so what's being described here isn't a, uh, a jump into data sharing from a dead start as if all data is completely walled off. It's a really natural progression from where the industry started to where it's been these last few years and now to a, a great destination. Yeah. Craig, I, I'm really pleased you, you brought those points up because that is true. There has been an, an ever-increasing amount of data sharing that does go on uh, from a, 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 the industry perspective. But I think it's also important that we, we come back to the fundamental point of fragmenting data and fragmenting data sets and particularly doing it in rare disease. I think for those... Um, uh, members of, of of industry that are working in the rare disease space, we recognize that trying to collate data in single registries is the optimal way to truly understand the natural history of a disease, but also that it may have on it. And even if there are multiple manufacturers potentially coming with therapeutic options within that, that, that therapy area, um, trying to have class-based registries really adds to the richness of the, the, the data set and potentially the knowledge that really falls out of it. So there is, I think, a, a, a spirit and a desire to be sharing because fundamentally it accelerates the uh, the time it takes to acquire answers that are already going to be challenging to get and you've got the chance of getting them sooner because you work together and I think that is the fundamental incentive for why data sharing you know has become more and more uh, uh, prevalent is because there's a recognition that there is a win for all parties here, that there is an opportunity to, to really accelerate that knowledge that is going to make, to, well, that is going to enable fundamental solutions to be built upon it. There's one particular aspect of the long-term follow-up that 
that people may not have thought through, which is we have a, a long history of registries and natural histories. And, and in those cases, people might tell you that the hardest thing to do is to find patients because their diseases may be so rare. With long-term follow-up, you've got the patients identified at the front end, but these are potentially treatments that will keep patients out of contact with the specialist who might be the point of data collection. How does the challenge of cell and gene therapies address the, the need for long-term follow-up? Yeah, so the, the, the point you've just raised for me is what I call almost like the engagement parallel. And, and it is a situation whereby a, a patient may have had huge engagement with their uh, healthcare provider, with the clinical community, uh, because of the fact that sadly, you know, they're, they're living with a rare disease. Then they have an opportunity for a, uh, a gene therapy, an advanced breakthrough therapy that may provide them significant relief of their, their clinical condition. And then all of a sudden, their need to directly engage with their healthcare pro uh, professional in the same way, it changes. Now, clearly, from a clinical perspective, short-term follow-up, medium-term follow-up is really important that that is done and that that's what's going to be said. But, but for the first time, potentially, for a patient, they may start to be feeling that they can live their life in a way that they've not previously been able to. And at the same time, we're saying, and please, can you sign up to a registry for the next 10 to 15 years or so? Because from, as I just described, the, the need for that follow-up has actually grown the need for that engagement has actually grown, but maybe the desire to actually engage in it may have dissipated. And that is a paradox that needs to be addressed. And then it really comes down to how do you find ways whereby you can engage with patients for that extended period of time? You know, I, I often say to people, you know, pick up, pick up your, your, your smartphone now. Have a look at all the apps you've got on there tell me how many of those have you engaged with over the past 10 years? And in reality, it's very, very few. And the ones that you do engage with as a user is because you're getting something from it. You're, 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 you're part of this relationship whereby you're gaining something from it, but similarly, the app provider is also gaining something from it. And this is, is, is sort of a, a similar sort of, uh, I think, uh, a foundation of the solution for how do we tackle truly long-term follow-up, that there has to be something in it for a patient to engage in long-term follow-up. They have to be able to have visibility of their data or they have to have the knowledge that their data is going to advance in such a way. But there has to be some form of incentive there so that we can maintain that engagement. Because if we can't, then despite having wonderful infrastructure in place, what we know from you know, company-sponsored long-term follow-up studies or, or, or other longitudinal databases, maintaining patient enrollment over a long period of time, it, it's not easy. And, pe and patients will fall out and drop out and be lost to follow-up. And, and, and that is something that we want to avoid at all costs because that information is also lost, therefore, to the community. So it's a great question you've asked. And I think how we, 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 we close this paradox is where the solutions lie.
Uh, Betsy or Craig, do you have thoughts on how you ensure that patients and clinicians participate over time? I think the uh, point that Ian just raised is only exacerbated when you factor in the range of ages that may be eligible for different cell and gene therapies. And when we're engaging with children or adolescents, right, think about a 12-year-old that you want to have follow-up data on for 15 years who's transitioning into adulthood and young adulthood. It's complex enough to imagine keeping me engaged from where I am in life for 15 years. Nevertheless, the different humans that that person will transition to become over that 15-year period, moving from assent to consent as a pediatric to an adult. And so having platforms that on the back end are consistent in terms of how we engage, how we um, we're transparent in principles, the types of data we're able to capture, but on the front end can evolve with the patient, can evolve with patient preference, can evolve with the type of functionality and interfaces that patients expect. But right, we want to have that consistency on the back end in terms of capturing meaningful and appropriate data while allowing us to have front-end experiences for the individual that make sense for where they are in life, in their journey, and as technology. I, I totally agree, Craig. And Danny, I think to me, there needs to be innovation in governance of long-term follow-up, by which I mean um, putting the governance and the ownership of data in the hands of the patients and the patient communities um, that they are there to serve. And I think also in technology, I think we have to continue to get closer and closer in with our technology to, to collecting data in a way that integrates into the patient's life. We have to move farther away from data are entered by a healthcare provider in an academic center through a keyboard, and they're just part of a patient's life. And there are great innovations in digital health technologies that can capture data um, right from pa patients in a way that's that's clinically meaningful. So uh, to me, innovation and governance and innovation and technology are going to be keys to, to succeeding with this over the long term. How much of a, a challenge is the infrastructure part of the equation? And how much technical expertise is needed to create and maintain a, a system so that they satisfy the needs of regulators, payers, clinicians, and patients? So to me, the infrastructure challenge is huge. I think it's the, the elephant that we need to move. Operating a successful long-term follow-up program takes a lot of work, and that translates into a lot of resources. And it's been hard for any stakeholder other than industry to bring that much resources to bear on the problem. I, I think it's one of the huge reasons that we have industry-owned siloed registries um, because they've really been um, one of the only stakeholders that that can that can bring the, bring resources to bear and build that infrastructure. Craig, let me ask you this: What are the risks in building a system today for gathering patient data ten or fifteen years down the road? Are there assumptions that can be made about the technology? 
Well, that, that's a really great question, right? First off, we're going to wonder what are the types of data today that we care about versus the types of data that may start to evolve and emerge over time as meaningful. Um, and I think that we need to expect this to be somewhat dynamic. There's data today that we know we can capture together with people. But there's data tomorrow that we probably will be able to capture that I can't even anticipate today. As long as we're engaging with people and we're transparent around those types of data and we're following those same principles around transparency and permission, we need to anticipate those unanticipated data types. Maybe going forward, we're going to find that location data that links us to weather and other uh, and other attributes around um, air quality um, is going to turn out to be vitally important. Maybe there's another type of data that I, I can't even describe to you today that in 10 years will be widespread. But what I can say is this, that the trends in, in the United States and emerging elsewhere around ensuring that patients are able to access their health data to use as they wish have been becoming more and more empowering and only continue to do so. Without starting to drift into politics, there's only one thing that I'm aware of that is an issue that has spanned the last three presidential administrations with each president taking pride saying they're doing even more of it than their predecessor rather than trying to carve it back. And that's empowering people with access to their personal health data. And so we have to plan for the capabilities and limitations that people have in accessing their data today, but at the very least should anticipate that it will only become better and easier in that regard in the US and hopefully in other regions. Yeah, and, and I think just to, to, to add to that, I think you know when you're building the infrastructure for these registries, you, you you have to have an eye on future proofing. You know, I was reflecting with, 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 with some, some colleagues recently about a registry, you know, that was initiated back in the, in the late eighties and ran for 20 odd years or so. And, and initially data capture was done on triplicate carbon copy pieces of paper. There was a white sheet, a pink sheet, a yellow sheet, and that was how data was collected. And then, eventually, you know, it was moved on to sort of, you know, non, not, you know, single sheet forms that were faxed, and then things moved on to direct uh, data entry into computers, and there was no need to fax. But ultimately, you know, over a 20 year period, there was a huge evolution on how that data was going to be captured. Now, I think if we're looking at setting up a registry today, well, what does that look like? So, you know, Craig, you made a great point around access to data and, and also. Uh, electronic data capture particularly and and you know electronic or medical records and, and and how that data may be pulled into registries you know that technology exists today and and the united states in many ways is leading on this but then again if you start to talk about true global registries the united states is is one country of many in a global uh, registry and some of the advances in electronic data capture and the use of electronic health or medical records, they are not as advanced in other parts of, of the world, in Europe, for example, to the same extent that they have done, uh, sort of caught on, as it were, in, in the US. So 
when you're starting out today, you've got to have an eye on the future, but it's also that you're embedding technology that already exists today in some parts of the world with a view that it will embed in others. But then for the leaders in technology, how do you build a, a system that is also enabling the early adoption of alternative data collection methods in the future that are going to optimize both speed, accuracy, and quality of data and and also it, it's the reduction in time for data entry you know uh, betsy made a great point around sort of more passive forms of data collection sort of wearables and the like you know that can 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 help to really populate and enrich data sets well it, it's about embracing those technologies but you've got to have an eye on it now with a view for the future and and, and that that brings huge challenges in itself let me build on that a little. What role do you think technology can play in solving some of these challenges? And will part of the solution lie in creating new types of tools to address the task at hand? Yeah, I, I think undoubtedly it will. But, but I also think it's important we make the point that I don't think technology is the barrier now. You know, when you speak to, you know, experts in data architecture, data management, those who are working in the cutting edge fields of data capture, a lot of this technology does exist. But, but can the technology talk to other parts of the technology? Do the governance uh, pathways and infrastructure, do they exist? Around data sharing and the necessary consents and the like, how well do they exist? And I think there's, in a funny sort of way, it's the technology that is actually leading a lot of this. And some of the uh, other aspects of of bringing uh, these registries to life are, are lagging behind. But in answer to your question, is technology going to be part of the solution? 100% in my view. Uh, Craig, are there new tools you see emerging? You know, there, there are new tools, but I think to Ian's point, a lot of those new tools are being catalyzed by policy and culture right, policy that makes sure that data is liquid, available, and in the hands of patients, and culture where where people know it's there and know that they have important things that they can do with their data, whether to help themselves or to help those around them by supporting research. But that being said, it's still today hard for people to consistently access their data in the way that they need to on their own terms. And I think that leaves gaps and opportunities out there for um, leaders in technology and for nonprofit organizations to. I think I'd also add that technology allows the data to come in. And so, yes, 100% the technology needs to keep getting better. And we would all agree that the ideal scenario for any rare disease community is a single global registry. But the reality is that's that's not going to happen. It's very rare that you can have one community with one registry. The, the reality more often is that there are multiple registries in multiple countries or at multiple academic centers led by multiple pharmaceutical companies or different patient groups. And I think one of the things that we need to get a lot better at is how we um, can design data sets and organize what goes in to those registries in a way that lets them be connected later. We need to get better at federating data, integrating data, bringing multiple data sets 
at a local level and pulling them up into a, a global view of a rare disease. So I think, I think that the way that we organize and structure and integrate data is another huge area of innovation that we, we need to keep working on. And you've had some involvement with work that's been done by the World Federation of Hemophilia to create a gene therapy registry to provide long-term outcome data. Can you talk a little bit about that effort? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's a wonderful example of, you know, going back to the themes we were speaking about earlier on, about multiple stakeholders coming together, uniting uh, around a common cause. I think it's a great example. So so the WFH um, uh, World Federation of Hemophilia Gene Therapy Registry is uh, a a single central um, registry that uh, is collecting information on all patients ultimately who will receive a gene therapy for hemophilia. And that's independent of the type of gene therapy, of the manufacturer who's produced that gene therapy, and also of geographical location. And the, the, the registry really came about because there was this common need to understand more about these new therapies coming through, and, and as touched on, particularly safety and durability, um, and that this need was coming from multiple stakeholders. So a steering committee sort of has helped to, to shape and build this registry, and that that steering committee has got representation from the clinical community, the academic community, from regulators, from manufacturers, the WFH themselves. They are a patient advocacy organization. So clearly there is representation from, from, from patient organizations as well. And collectively, through different lenses, but with a common goal, we've been in a situation to really build this registry. And also with an eye on agreeing what that common data set is, but also what that, how that common data set, to, 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 to Betsy's point around trying to integrate that with other existing registries to publish on that data set, to make that data set very available and clear so that other registries around the world that may be looking to do something similar, they're aware what that data set is they would hopefully adopt a similar data set. And then there is the capacity for the subsequent data linkage between different registries. So, so that is very much um, what the WFH uh, gene therapy registry has been able to create. It's not been built in a silo. It's been built in consultation also with, with regulators uh, and, and with the community as a whole. And I think that is part of, the potential success of this registry as an example. Has anything been learned from that process that others can draw from? <laughs> Unsurprisingly, I think you want to start this as soon as you can. Uh, <laughs> it takes time. You know, the idea and, you know, how I set it out there, it, it all makes complete sense. But obviously to, to get it to a point where actually this is going to go live, it takes a huge amount of effort, of time, of commitment. And I think starting early, but I think the other learnings are staying true to the, to, to, to the core, that this is something that is built in partnership with these multiple stakeholders united around the central goal. Because when challenges do occur, and inevitably they will, and they do, how do you find those solutions? And it, it, you find the solutions 
through, again, you know, a common approach to a problem where recognizing that everyone has got to compromise a little bit. But then again, everybody has skin in the game. Everyone has a vested interest in making it work. So some of the conflicts that may exist, you know, they, they, they dissipate rather quickly when you start to then focus, well, why are we all doing this? Well, we're all doing it for the same reason. And you get a cohesive uh, 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 movement forward. You get impetus, you, you know, you get trajectory. And I think that helps to propel the results all being well going forward. But I, I think they're the, the, the main learnings from, from, from our side. So maybe we can go around the panel and just ask each of you, what you see is the potential for a non-proprietary patient-owned data collection platform for long-term cell and gene therapy? Maybe, Betsy, you can begin. I think a platform that allows for patients to own and govern access to their data, a platform that is robust and is designed to meet the needs of regulators in terms of the the quality and robustness of the data, Um, and a platform that allows for access that is not siloed, that is explicitly about allowing access to the data by the researchers and drug developers who have real-time questions that they need to pose to those data, I think if we could have a platform like that, it would be an enormous contribution to solving for rare diseases. Craig? I think about what the platforms and policies and expectations are for patients today versus where they will look like in five years, 10 years, 15 years, right? Because that's really what we're talking about, that we need we need to have systems and, and, and platforms that are sustainable for these trials in terms of the long-term follow-up. If you want to have a sustainable platform, meaning it is one that will stand that test of time and where the trends are pointing, where the arrows are pointing today, it is around platforms that are patient-powered and that can support research in the broadest sense, that have data in the span of control of the individuals who are able to share it where they want or need to, um, and it's able to reach its fullest potential. If you're launching a platform today that you want to stretch out to 15 years, these are the attributes that you want to see. And I think it has huge potential and it delivers huge excitement. I think what, what I'm really struck on with this as a potential solution is from a patient's perspective, that clear transparency and knowledge of how their data is going to be used, but also how their data is uh, uh, utilized to answer true clinical questions. I love the idea of a patient being able to, you know, be able to read and, uh, and digest and learn about the outcomes that their data, that their uh, contribution have brought about, to be able to see that transparently. Because coming back to that engagement, the vast majority of people I speak to in the rare disease community 
they are so incredibly engaged because either you know they, they, they've been personally affected or, or, or family members have been affected by their rare diseases and all they want is to do what they can to beat these diseases and to have that personal knowledge as a patient that your data is contributing and you can see it i think that's a huge incentive to maintain engagement and for what we're talking about in rare diseases, it is going to be a long-term engagement that's going to be required, particularly in, in, in cell and gene therapy. And I think that is the crux of it. it is, it's to enable patients to really feel they are making a difference, that they are the ones who are helping to move the, the, the science and the clinical practice forward. As a final question for each of you, I'd like to ask, what do you think the biggest barriers to success will be to establishing such a platform? And what would be critical for getting stakeholders to embrace it? Betsy? I think that infrastructure is a huge barrier. I think creating the robust infrastructure that is required to really solve the problem and deliver regulatory grade data is a huge barrier. I'll just, I'll stop with that one for now. Craig? To me, this is all about trust, and it is the most precious asset that we have today, and it is the easiest resource for us to lose tomorrow. The best way for us to maintain trust is with transparency and control in the hands of people. The easiest way for us to lose it is to follow the playbook that we're watching social media and some other large tech companies make mistakes around. And so this is our opportunity. We still have trust. We have trust in particular from individuals that are choosing to participate in research our ability to maintain trust through transparency and permissions is, is going to be. And Ian, I'll give you the final word. Oh. <laughs> so, you know, I think a big barrier here is, is almost being intimidated by the scale of, of the solution. And I think we must do everything that we can not to be intimidated by it. I think there are, certainly avenues where we can really prove the concept that this is possible. I think there are wins that can be achieved in, you know, there are, there are over 7,000 rare diseases. There is a need across all of them for this sort of platform, but it's about identifying where is the, 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 the right place to go and demonstrate the, the, the proof of concept to demonstrate that it's doable, to bring the coalition of the willing together, as it were, and, and to make it happen. And I think if we get intimidated by the scale of trying to deliver, you know, the perfect registry in the perfect way for the perfect length of time to all rare diseases, you, you can easily get paralyzed. But I think it's about focus, laser focus, and and being able to really demonstrate the concept. But if we can do that, then bit by bit, I think we can really, really make a difference. Betsy Bogard, Craig Lipset, and Ian Winburn, thank you all for your time and sharing your insights. Thank you. Thanks for bringing Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. RareX is a collaborative platform for global data sharing and analysis to accelerate treatments for rare disease. 
WearX is adapting proven technologies and partnering with leading experts to create a federated data analysis platform specifically designed by Rare community leaders and scaled to support the diverse and expanding needs of rare disease research, development, and care. To learn more about RareX, go to rare-x.org. This podcast is produced for RareX by the Levine Media Group. Music is courtesy of the Jonah Levine Collective.